Welcome to Wild Spaces, coming to you from Denver, Colorado, where the Great Plains meet the Rocky Mountains, where we connect you to nature, real estate, and the adventurous professionals leading us to a better designed, healthier future. So grab your notebook, sketch pad, and put your feet in the grass as we become more wild together. On today's episode of the Wild Spaces podcast, we're joined by Dr. Piers McNaughton. Piers is the Director of Health Strategy at VIEW. He leads their research program on health and wellness and provides strategic guidance on VIEW's product development. His research focuses on the influence of the built environment on occupant health and productivity and has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, NPR, and other notable publications. So in alignment with our mission of the Wild Spaces podcast, he strives to apply the findings of his research to push the real estate market towards healthier work environments. Piers, thanks for joining us. It's good to be here. Yeah, yeah, great to talk to you for a lot of reasons. I think first and foremost is you have some serious credentials, as anyone who's looked at your resume would would notice. You graduated from Tufts University with a degree in environmental engineering and went on to the Harvard School of Public Health, where you received your master's and doctor's degrees in exposure, epidemiology, and risk. So I'd like to start with just you walking us through your journey into studying the impacts of the built environment in college and how you got into this field of research. Yeah, it's a great question. And I knew from when I was very young that I had interest in the environment. Um, so that's something that's been part of my life for really all of my life. And when I went to college, I was kind of torn about how to incorporate that into my studies and, and kind of into my, my path going forwards. Um, I actually initially applied to the liberal arts school at Tufts. And then within about the first month or so, I realized that um, I probably should be switching over to the engineering school to take more applied approach. Uh, so I quickly, after the first semester, switched schools and then uh, did environmental engineering for the rest of my time at Tufts. And it was a great decision for me. It, it helped me get kind of a really applied skill set under my belt. Um, and it also opened up a lot of doors in terms of uh, research for me. Uh, I think early on in my sophomore year, I was able to get involved through my advisor on a research project looking at the impact of outdoor air quality on um, people's health. We're specifically looking at pollution around highways um, in urban areas. And that was a great kind of entry point for me to start looking at, uh, you know, specifically how the environment can impact health in a very kind of concrete way, looking at cardiovascular outcomes and respiratory outcomes. Um, so working on that CAFE research study was kind of like my entry into research. And um, I think the, the doorway for me to get really involved in environmental sciences um, really early on in my academic career. Yeah, it's fascinating to me that you, I think a lot of us come into college and, you know, just trying to figure out what we want to do. So I think it's always great to see someone that's, they recognized that going into it and kind of found a passion and has seen that through. You know, I think a lot of, that's different than a lot of people's, I think, college experience, but in a really positive way. Um, where do you think your affinities for the outdoor and nature came from? It was something that was definitely still very early on in my life, um, my, my family had a big focus on that. I actually grew up, uh, it was in uh, the outskirts of Boston, but in the town I was in, we were on probably the one farmhouse. Um, and so we were on 20 acres of land and really no one around. And so I also had eight brothers and sisters. And so pretty much every day we would be outside just playing um, in the space around our house. And that was kind of what I think instilled that love of nature from really early in my life. Um, and then also as kind of a family thing, 
we uh, were all avid hikers and we do all these family trips and still do <laughs> um, pretty much anytime I go back home to Boston, we, we plan a hike in and um, we, my dad actually, he was a counselor at a camp in the Adirondack mountains in upstate New York. And so he always is dragging us back there, even though it's still kind of a five hour drive from our, our home in Boston. And um, we do probably, you know, two family hikes a year with, you know, as many of us as we can get together the big family. So it leads to these kind of big family gatherings. And uh, so I've done, you know, tons of hikes up there. I'm actually a, a 46er, which means I've done all the peaks over um, 4,000 feet there. Uh, most of them wow. more than once. <laughs> and wow. um, we're continuing to get now my, my nieces and nephews to come out there and they're working their way towards their 46. So it's been just a tradition of our family to, you know, be outdoors, experience nature and to have that time together to kind of bond as a family. Yeah, I can imagine with with eight brothers and sisters that having you play outside of the house is almost essential at that point. Right. Yeah, there's no way we can keep ourselves inside. <laughs> yeah. And and great that you guys are passing that on to the next generation. I mean, I think mm -hmm. that's that's one of the core themes of biophilic design and the research and, you know, the narrative that you are putting out there, right, is I think as people come to appreciate nature, experience nature, that there's there's more of a caring for it and all the other living beings around the planet. I think that's like an undercurrent to all of the work. So I'm I'm glad to see that as part of your process as well. Yeah. So in the introduction to one of your recent research publications, um, I thought you made a really important point. And you said that architects and interior designers often cite psychological and health benefits of biophilic design. However, the research quantifying the physiological and cognitive benefits of indoor biophilic features is limited. So I think for me, there are really two key points there. You know, one, that designers and developers should be careful about greenwashing, or let's call it like nature washing claims. But two, that we're finally entering a time where the ample benefits of using a biophilic design framework within our commercial real estate projects is starting to be documented and verified. So what's the current research telling us about the benefits of merging the built and the natural environments? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And we, I mean, we, we already know that people want this. Um, and that's why I'm sure you're familiar as an architect that this is something that people are asking for in their projects. I think the challenge has been is that this has kind of been a very kind of soft scientific field. There isn't really a lot of research. So what ends up happening is that architects just kind of have to use their best judgment. And there are lots of ways to bring in biophilic elements which are, you know, re resembling nature into the built environment. Um, but which ones are the best? <laughs> that's, that's the challenge because we don't really have a lot of research that ties specific design strategies back towards those health outcomes or even preferences. Um, so that's where I think the shortcoming has been. Uh, while I was at Harvard, we had a program dedicated towards studying this. And we did a number of studies trying to piece that apart. Um, we actually did these in, in virtual reality where we could really finally control what would be the design elements. We can kind of make these mock-up environments in VR and then take out one element, add an element and kind of see just by doing these really small changes, how that drives people's outcomes in terms of their ability to do cognitive tasks, be creative, um, you know, or do focused tasks and as, as well as their physiological health, like their, their blood pressure, heart rate, stress, things of that nature. Um, and so that was kind of the, the key uh, strategy we took was to put some numbers behind this and show which types of elements can drive benefits in terms of health and cognitive function. Um, in our case, we broke them down into several buckets. This is kind of tied back to the 14 patterns of bioflick design. We looked at 
nature in the space, which is basically bringing in actual views and plants and things of that nature. Nature analogs, which is having uh, stuff that mimics nature, so patterns or materials. And then nature of the space, which is whether it's, you know, do you have, you know, long distance views and prospect, do you have spaces for refuge? And so we've made kind of these more open areas as well as these more focused spaces. Um, and we found that in actuality that any of those strategies can help improve those outcomes. Um, so that was kind of encouraging that there isn't necessarily one type of biophilic design that is the best. And actually the one that was the most preferred is when you combine different types of patterns together. So having a more well-rounded space that has both, you know, the views and plants, as well as material connection to nature and both the options for a more focus and um, refuge space versus a prospect space is more open. So that flexibility and that combination of features is what drove some of the benefits in terms of reducing blood pressure, um, lowering stress. And then on the cognitive side, the, the thing that we saw in these sets of studies was um, actually on some of the focus tasks, having a ton of biophilic features, they, they would still be very successful at those tasks, but they might take longer just because they are more distracted by the environment around them, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. And that's what we think drove the improvements in creativity because they're you know having these more stimulating environments around them. It's kind of creating that um, creative space for them and stimulating those outcomes. So there are maybe some trade-offs if you want to have purely head down work, maybe having a really biophilic, um, compelling environment would distract people from that. But in terms of collaboration and creativity, those spaces, um, you would want to have a kind of a, just a whole collection of these types of features to stimulate um, that type of productive outcome. That's great to hear. Yeah, I think the more research that is coming out and the more I've, I've followed it, it is always fascinating to me that it's basically, you know, almost universally beneficial, right? It's, it's good for you physiologically, people self-report mood improvements. Um, and now we're starting to document all of those things, you know, it improves your cognitive functioning and your creativity. So I think it's really exciting to kind of see the wide ranging benefits of, you know, in some cases, like pretty minimal interventions into these workspaces in the case of your research. Right. We, we deliberately didn't make these kind of crazy, um, you know, environments that you never see. We actually worked with an architecture firm to develop the spaces we use in virtual reality to make them actually reflect real spaces that they had designed. So the goal was to make kind of realistic environments and look at what would be the actual outcomes. The other thing that initially we were worried about is, you know, if we put things in VR, is that going to make it really a different experience? So before getting into that work, we actually did a study ahead of that where we had people, we exposed people to real environments and then we uh, filmed those environments in 360 degrees and exposed them to the same environments in virtual reality. And we found that they actually responded almost the same from a physiological standpoint in the virtual environment as the real environment, which is a good thing to learn from a, just in terms of the tool of, of VR, which is something we're using more and more in terms of design knowing that that can actually kind of be immersive enough to kind of cause the same reaction that you would have if someone were to actually go to a space that had those features. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, just from the design side, you're right. It, it's definitely a tool that we're starting to, that we have been leveraging for years. Um, but that is, it's really encouraging to know that it, it does replicate the experience of actually being in that space on a very deep, you know, physiological level. Mm-hmm. Like as the the architect and urban designer in me, you know, kind of 
on one hand hates that idea of like, oh, you know, we, we take people in these urban areas or places where you can't have access to nature and some of the physical like nature in the space elements um you know give them that experience virtually like right the architect and urban designer kind of cringes at that a little bit but i think it's it's really powerful to know that you still achieve essentially comparable benefits right i think is what you're saying from experiencing those environments in vr yeah. as opposed to in reality but there i mean there are limitations too with vr we had to use very short um, periods of time, you know, putting someone in VR for more than an hour is actually really taxing on them. So it's not like you can have VR be the replacement for these environments. I think what it does is in the design process, the way it currently works now is that we have an idea, we incorporate into a design, we build the building, three years later, someone comes in, we do a post-occupancy evaluation, and then we learn what the effect was. That's a very long cycle. So VR gives you the opportunity to kind of in real time be able to iterate on some of these design choices and make some you know, learnings as you go so you can actually build those things into your designs as opposed to just kind of putting it in and then hoping that it has the outcome you want. Yeah, yeah, I think you're saying the combination of that VR technology and the rise in wearable sensors, right? Like it's kind of those two put together would allow us as designers and as researchers to iterate through types of spaces and understand the impact of those decisions a lot more rapidly. Yeah. Which is great. Do you think that for most people, I guess I'd say outside of commercial real estate industry, do you think most people understand the impact that physical spaces has on their health and well-being? Um, I think that it used to be a little bit tougher of a, a sell, <laughs> um, having done this research for a long time. Uh, it, it's something that people I still intuitively know. I mean, we call public health a field of common sense. It's, we're studying things that people kind of already feel like they know. Um, if you talk about air quality and lighting and noise, people have some in, in thermal comfort as well. People have their own perceptions on those things. It's not always front of mind. And a lot of people like to be a little more stoic in how they approach the built environment. Um, that's conversations definitely changed in the last 12 months uh, with the COVID pandemic. People are mm -hmm. very aware of how their environment might be influencing their health and wellness in a very critical way when it comes to infectious yeah. disease. And I think that that's going to take what was kind of a, a newer movement around healthy buildings. And, you know, that might have taken 10, 15 years, which is kind of the path that, you know, the green building movement was on and compress that down into two to five years. So, uh, yes, I think we have a lot more awareness. People are thinking more critically about their environment, even people that, you know, aren't in the industry and um, are just your regular person that's interacting with space. Hmm. So back to your earlier discussion just on this specific biophilic or design elements, you know, which of those did you see in the studies that either resonated with people um, either emotionally or like from decreased blood pressure standpoint, like which of those got the most benefit and visual engagement? Yeah. So we were expecting, or we were kind of wondering what we would see. And we, we deliberately tested different modes to get at that. And we actually saw that different types of, uh, the biophilic elements drove different outcomes. So it wasn't like one thing was just the best. Honestly, what, what we found to be the most kind of comprehensive solution was the combination environment where we had both natural elements and natural analogs. So I wouldn't mm -hmm. say there's one simple answer here. I think the goal is to have kind of a, a environment that kind of brings together a lot of strategies and, uh, and doesn't necessarily hinge on just one. Um, so that's, I know that's not maybe the, 
most straightforward answer. In, in our case, we we looked at things like presence of views. Um, we had a lot of material connection to nature, so like wood tones. We had a lot a lot of patterns, things that you know had um, grass patterns, for example. Um, we had actual physical plants that we put in the space. So we really did, we kind of did the kitchen sink approach and that actually seemed to be the way that, uh, the one that drew the most positive reactions. Yeah, yeah. Each of the elements themselves is beneficial, but you're saying the combination is is most effective. Yeah, and actually, if you look at the environments we created, the ones that had just one modality, they actually look, it can almost be a little bit off-putting sometimes because it's, if you have a room that's just full of plants and that's the only kind of design strategy you've implemented, that kind of comes across as in that unnatural environment. So the combination helps make it more of a natural fluid environment as opposed to having something that you just kind of go all in on that makes it kind of one dimensional. Yeah, which I think you're right, is, is more interesting and I think unconsciously probably just natural to us as humans, right? That this this type of design is about replicating the experience for me of being in a natural environment and there's subtle changes in shade and shadow and breeze and temperature and, and all of those things I think hit people at, you know, probably a subconscious level. So I definitely agree with what you're saying that it's, it's not as simple. Like we see a lot of time of just tons of plants in a workspace. Cause as you said, you know, you know that those aren't naturally there. You're in inside a building, you're in your, you know, your work area. Um, so yeah, I think that, I mean, that would, it's always interesting to see when, you know, the research echoes what you would kind of assume intuitively, but really, really valuable that we're starting to get that data. Yeah. Another thing too, is that people are, everyone's a, their own person and has their own preferences. And so um, you might have one design strategy that really resonates with one person. If you go all in on that, it will help that subset of people. Um, but if you want to make a kind of more diverse and inclusive environment, I think it's better to pull from different types of, you know, even just thinking about the types of plants or the types of materials that you bring in, um, having those represent different parts of the world that can make your space kind of for anyone that comes in, have it resonate with their own background. Um, if you do kind of tunnel, tunnel vision in on one thing, then you might be making something that's great for some people, but then less kind of welcoming and inclusive to others. Yeah. So you guys, had developed like a biophilic interior design index, right? As part of your studies where you, where you ask participants about their perception of these biophilic features and the spaces that you were creating. I'm curious if they, like how they rated the biophilic spaces. Were there, did it match what they expected? Were there surprises that came out of those surveys? Um, well, I think it, for us, it kind of confirmed the validity of the tool in the sense that the ratings that we had subjectively really tracked with um, the what we what we thought to be the ratings ourselves, if just as someone with more background on it. So the the tool did seem like it applied, or even a layperson can go in and provide a good recommendation. It's very simplistic. It just is asking for each of the different features. Is there none, a little, a lot of that feature present? And it breaks it down into the subcomponents. So. Um, you know, asking specifically about views, specifically about plants, and it goes through kind of 14 different um, patterns of biophilic design and rates it on each of those. And it works out kind of like what we were talking about, that if you want to have a good biophilic design rating, you need to be able to hit all the patterns, right? You can't just have, if you just focus on a number of them, your rating will be relatively lower because you're going to be absent in all the rest. Um, so the index was kind of geared to give the most credit in terms of biophilic design for the people that go with the most number of features. 
And that was a tool that you guys really had to take on yourselves, right? Because it, it wasn't something that you had found kind of a standard for that existed right now. Right. There, you know, there are some groups that have put out more subjective, like here are ways you can introduce biophilic design, but there wasn't any way to evaluate a space on how it had done. So that was the gap. And from a research standpoint, we can't look at what the impact is unless we know what the exposure is. So we needed to make a tool that could actually quantify the exposure to biophilic design before we can then link it to the outcomes. Um, so that was something from a research perspective that we wanted, but um, for the industry, it, it gives them a, a opportunity to have a way to kind of rate their space and then also see if the spaces they're creating are, are meeting a, you know, a high level of biophilic design um, in terms of meeting those different patterns. Today's episode is brought to you by the Wild Spaces Institute, your hub for connecting people to nature through commercial real estate and architecture. Discover how you can create real estate and designs that are valuable, awe-inspiring, and biophilic at wildspacesinstitute.org. Yeah, I imagine it's a similar it's a similar discussion to what we're having with a lot of our clients, just on the architecture and urban design side, right? Is I think as you said at the start, there's an increasing awareness of the impact and benefits of connecting people to nature for a lot of different reasons in commercial real estate. Um, but then the question quickly becomes like, okay, this is great. It's an idea that we love. Well, how do we do that? Um, and how do we turn those subjective kind of idea of patterns and prospect and refuge and things into, you know, actual exposure and, and design elements. And I think that's a, that's the next exciting wave, I think in the field. And I think you're, you're touching on that as well is like starting to, develop tools that kind of validate those design moves and the benefits of them. Totally. I mean, that's been my kind of my goal throughout my career in whichever realm I touch in healthy buildings is to put some of the quantification behind it. So we have, even outside biophilic design, there are other aspects around air quality and, and lighting and acoustics where we have kind of a very kind of subjective understanding of how those might influence health. My goal has really been to kind of study those more specifically and get quantified, quantified outcomes of how they impact people's health and performance. Um, so that's that's a theme of mine. I, I, it's something that I think is kind of missing, and that's I think that's where the research perspective can come in and help people really understand specifically what are the outcomes. Yeah. Can you think of examples of spaces that do this really well? That are you know in your mind you know really about connecting people to nature and kind of merging the our built environments and particularly urban areas and the natural world? Yeah, I mean, um, there are two examples that come to mind just from my own personal experience. There are places that I spend a lot of time in. Um, one is at my previous, when I was at Harvard, the space that we had um, did a, a great job of doing this. We, we actually, as people understood this, put some effort into create kind of bringing in biophilic elements into our space um, at our office in Landmark. And then now having switched over to VIEW and working at our headquarters, we just went through a, a big renovation process for our headquarters building. It's an older building that was initially a, a semiconductor manufacturing facility. So not a space that it was kind of more of a sterile environment when we got there. And we just went through a renovation process. We were able to, to bring our glass in um, and provide these kind of really amazing views to the, um, the mountains to the east of our office. Um, we're based on the uh, the east side of the bay. So we have these really nice views of the, the foothills. Um, and then also be able to kind of bring in nice new materials in terms of patterns, the, the carpeting that kind of evokes that as well as um, 
some of these other kind of biophilic features. So those two are spaces that I've had to spend a lot of time in since I've worked in them. And I think in both cases, over time, they really uh, did a good job of making those spaces, you know, welcoming and have those biophilic features in place. Oh, that's fantastic. I used to work actually random discussion, but my, my first job in college, I worked part-time testing semiconductors. I went to the university of Texas in Austin. So a lot of big semiconductor industry there. And it was, it was like one of my first jobs. So I know the, ex I can picture the environment you're describing where it was like, mm -hmm. you know, everything was white and gray. There were no windows, just like endless corridors and cubicles. In our case, it had to be a clean room. So you couldn't even have things like plants because it would introduce um, think, you know, impurities into the air that could mess up whatever process is going on. So that's been kind of a, a 180 flip for us to go from a clean room environment over to one that's, uh, you know, a space designed for occupants. At, at view at your renovation of the headquarters, was that specific aspect of biophilic design like consciously part of the design goals or were those just elements that you guys found yourselves adding into the space? Uh, well, it's, it's something that's kind of at the core of our company. Really, what we're doing is we're creating this smart window system that allows people to have uninterrupted views without having any glare. Um, so bringing that aspect, obviously, to have our own headquarters be a showcase for that was really important. Um, we actually put in a bunch of skylights into our space, too, just to keep because it's a kind of a single story with a pretty dense core initially as an indus industrial site. So we had to punch in a bunch of um, skylights to increase that daylight access. Uh, so in that case, I think from our own company perspective, it does a great job of kind of showing what our technology can do. Um, that was probably the, the, the most important part. And then um, just based on the people that are at our company, these are people that are obviously love the outdoors. They are love sustainability. Um, they're really invested in commercial real estate. So they kind of get the story about biophilic design. So in terms of the rest of the design process, all of those things were, um, you know, high on the priority list because our team believes that doing so is going to lead to better outcomes for our employees and then ultimately our business. Yeah. Yeah. And then obviously, as you said, your smart windows and dynamic glazing are directly related to connecting people to nature in so many ways. Right. What other, I guess, here's here, what other new products or research you're working on with your team at VIEW? Um, we have a lot of research happening. Lately, it's um, it's been geared around healthcare. Some of that research hasn't published yet. The stuff that we did, um, that we just wrapped up and published um, over the last couple of months is uh, looking at the impact of daylight on people's sleep and cognitive function. We had a study called the Evolve study that we did with um, the University of Illinois and uh, SUNY Upstate Medical Center in New York. And uh, we found that when people have that, that connection to both the view as well as the daylight access, it makes them perform a lot better. In our case, 42% high, higher cognitive function scores um, and actually sleep a lot better. Our bodies have a circadian system that is regulated by our exposure to daylight. It's, it's how we keep our 24 hour cycle. And so a lot of our bodily processes are tied to that 24 hour rhythm. Um, the most obvious one is our sleep cycle. And so we found that when people were working in a space with view glass that had that exposure to daylight, especially early in the day, that would help and kind of set that clock for them. It helped them sleep more that night. And actually for the, in this case, we had people working for one week in a space without view glass and then one week in a space with view glass. 
And when they were in that space with few glass, they slept 37 minutes longer than they had in the space without. So a pretty sizable yes. impact on, on their sleep duration just from where they're working during the day. Um, keep in mind, they're still going at home and sleeping in their regular environment. So this is looking after they left the office, there's still this kind of ongoing um, impact from what their exposure was in the, the morning and afternoon. Yeah, that's what that's what blew me away with that study, right? Is you get you get the benefits during the day while you're at work. One, you know, it's a more beautiful space. You're more productive. You're more kind of alert while you are there. But there's enough impact that those benefits carry over, you know, when you're home in your own environment and going to sleep, you know, especially even in just like a one week comparison. Yeah. So, yeah. That was that was kind of shocking to me that it was that scale of impact. Right. And, and it's free. You know, you just have to show up <laughs> um, and then you get the benefit, whereas a lot of the other things you might do to improve your sleep quality might be more have side effects or consequences. You know, the other things we looked at in the study was, um, did you take a sleep supplement like melatonin? Did you, hmm. you know, drink alcohol? Did you um, exercise? All those things are known to impact people's sleep quality. Um, they actually had a smaller effect. Even the sleep supplement has a smaller effect than the effect of being in the space with daylight. Um, so just having these kind of natural exposures to daylight has a really strong signal on people's sleep quality. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. The benefits there. Um, and it, it seems just kind of simple in a way, like you said, I mean, it's something that has such wide reaching benefits. Um, I'm wondering to me, I'm always like, why isn't this the standard in all buildings, which I know is obviously your goal with, with you and your products is like, this is just a better way to create spaces. It should be how we design all of these, you know, office spaces, healthcare spaces, especially, you know, schools for children, you know, in the future. So I'm, I'm sure that's what you guys are going toward and you have that same sentiment as well. Yeah. We think ultimately that, you know, blinds will one day be the thing of the past. Um, there, there are other design things you can do. And, um, there are a lot of architecture firms that are doing a great job about introducing shading in the right places and, um, other types of creative ways of controlling daylight exposure. So, you know, ultimately it's the daylight that's causing the outcome. It's not view. We just happen to be a technology that helps increase daylight access while still avoiding things like glare and, um, thermal comfort issues. So yeah, there might be multiple ways to get there, but ultimately the buildings of the future are going to have this figured out and they're going to make sure that everyone has good daylight access indoors. Yeah. And I think the discussion that that's hopefully moving us towards, and I'm pulling this kind of from your, your other study that you did with the Harvard School of Public Health, the nine foundations of a healthy building, mm -hmm. is you really talk about that it, it's at its core, at least I'm paraphrasing, so correct me if this is wrong, but I think it, it is kind of fundamentally simple to create a healthy building, or I would also say maybe a green building, right? And I think that's something that in this discussion maybe has gotten lost over the years and the decades that it it's complicated to certify a green building right now let's say but i guess the question is you know is it fundamentally simple to create one yeah and i don't want to make it sound like it's too easy and discredit all the great work that's happening out there um there's certainly challenges ahead uh there are a lot of buildings that are older that have done a great job of this you know it's not something that needs to be, you know, brand new and uh, to able to to be both healthy and sustainable. Sometimes I think people see there might be a dichotomy in terms of making it both green and healthy. One, one common one that's discussed is around ventilation rate. You know, do you want to bring in more air and then potentially have to expend more energy to condition it? Or do you want to be more, you know, clamping down on energy? We saw back in the 70s during the oil crisis that the solution was 
let's reduce ventilation rates and let's also um, reduce the size of windows to reduce the heat gain. And you end up with this kind of cohort of buildings in the 70s and 80s that are, you know, no one wants to be in now. They have very little daylight access, low ventilation rates. And it was actually in the 80s after the, the, these buildings came you know, out into the market that we saw like this, this, the whole study of sick building syndrome happened because of these buildings and studying the people that were in those spaces and looking at the health effects that arose from being exposed to poor air quality and not having appropriate access to, to daylight and views. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I think there are, it's not necessarily gonna be a, a super straightforward thing. We, the nine foundations, part of the goal was to at least raise awareness around what are the factors you should be considering there are solutions on all of them. So um, there, there are certainly ways to make buildings that are healthy and sustainable. And there are a lot of really great examples of that already. Um, and we think that with the types of new technologies, you know, like ours and others that are coming on the market, it becomes even easier to get there because there's more solutions at people's disposal as they design buildings. Yeah, I think there's, there's always going to be those types of trade-offs, right? But I, I think the hope is that we're as we understand the research health you know nature inspired elements in the projects and others that we're able to to kind of prioritize those and, and i think eliminate hopefully some of those trade-offs in the long run by being able to understand like the real overlaps between a lot of these you know beneficial design moves so i think as an example you know in the nine foundations of healthy building you know, incorporating nature and nature inspired design indoors was listed as a key strategy in healthy buildings. Um, so certainly it's one of those attributes that you guys had recognized there. You know, it was specifically under the lighting and views category. Mm -hmm. But I think what's interesting to me is when when I really think about it. And as you described early on in your first research study about the combination of those elements, that it's really something that could positively impact almost all of the healthy building categories, right? Thermal comfort, water and air quality, noise. I think of those are things that are done well in the natural environment. So I think, you know, as we attempt to replicate those more within our interior spaces, that's, that's got far reaching benefits. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's something that kind of spans a number of the foundations. And so it's a good place to start. Um, you know, we've evolved in, in these open natural spaces. It's not surprising that we actually in, like those types of environments. So um, if we make our indoor environments kind of match those idealistic outdoor environments that we like to be in, um, you can anticipate that we, as even beyond just our preference, but to the, you know, more physiological outside of uh, outcomes of things that we would respond well to being in spaces that kind of bring in some of those um, exposures that we, you know, we were evolved to be around. Yeah. In your keeping up with the research, are there things that you've seen recently that, that surprise you? I'm always interested in the kind of, you know, in this scientific process, right? Sometimes you have unexpected things. So either in your studies or in others that you've read, are there, are there surprises that you've seen? Uh, for, in, in my case, I am someone that, uh, there's always new stuff that's coming out from a research perspective. Um, I, I still get really surprised when I see the result I expect just because research is hard and sometimes you can do everything right <laughs> yeah. and not get the, still get a null result. So, um, I've been like taking the evolved study as an example. Um, I was amazed to see not just that we saw the signal in terms of cognitive function and sleep. The thing that actually surprised me the most about that was the fact that of the, um, 30 people in our study that the effects were 
consistent for almost every single person, all 30 people. It wasn't like some people gained more and some people didn't gain. It was really consistent how those um, environments improve people's both sleep and especially cognitive function. Not only did every person have an increase in the space with view glass, the progression over the course of the week was almost the same for every single person where the people that well, the week they were in the space with blinds, their performance got worse from Monday to Friday for almost every single participant. And then conversely Jeez. in the space with view glass, their performance got better with more time in the space. Um, so for me, a yeah. lot of times it's, it's not necessarily about the, the finding that was completely unexpected. It's about seeing the result that you might have hypothesized, but seeing it in such a pervasive and strong way um, that it can really convince people that, that this is true. Uh, a lot of, as I mentioned kind of earlier on, is that while a lot of this might be intuitive, people don't really necessarily act until they have the, the proof point behind it. And so making a really strong, compelling argument showing that you studied this in a controlled way and then had the result, people can, can kind of latch on to those numbers and start to make the case for themselves. You know, a lot of times with some of these design choices, they might come with an incremental cost. Um, and so if you can start to put the benefits in concrete terms, if you can translate those benefits into more of the financial outcomes, you know, things like cognitive function, productivity, those benefits are most likely going to really outweigh whatever might be the upfront uh, cost or effort to put in those design choices. You know, buildings are designed to house us as occupants. Um, and most of the, what companies are paying for is for the people, right? That's usually about 90% yeah. of the co operational costs of a company. So any small change that impacts the performance of your employees is far going to outweigh the, you know, the 10% you spend on the design and construction of your buildings or the 1% that you spend on the energy costs. Um, so putting, putting things in that light, I think is help people take things that, you know, might seem like common sense, but actually act upon them in a way that changes how they do their design. Yeah. So building off that, I guess, counter to that, what are you still seeing or encountering as headwinds to some of the more widespread adoption, knowing that, as you said, that the, the benefits are starting to become clearly documented, they're wide reaching affect most people. Um, and I like to think they come at, you know, an incremental cost, right? We're talking about a different design framework, not necessarily adding on a bunch of different, you know, products or, or systems onto, onto existing projects. So what are you encountering it as headwinds to wider spread adoption? Um, part is just intrinsic to the industry, which is that it's a very slow moving one, you know, buildings last for 50 years, maybe more. Uh, so if you have a building that was designed with the wrong things in place initially, it's hard to get that, you know, the whole cohort of buildings to turn over to being what you want it to be. So that's one challenge. And then the second thing is, is just status quo that people have a set way of doing things. And it is harder to, and risk potentially riskier to kind of upturn that to in, introduce new things that, um, maybe are not going to have, you know, as sure an outcome as what they've been doing for the last 20, 30 years. So a lot of it has been kind of one demonstrating that these things have been done and validated and have not um, had any risky downside um, and having that persist for many years. Um, and then two is just the awareness side, you know, as people become more and more aware of the benefits that are, are, are that are out there for them, um, they're more willing to take the, the risk to incorporate something that's new to them. Yeah. That's our, our industry is not, not always the most innovative or, or fast moving. Right. Right. Uh, so here, so this has been fascinating discussion. I think the, the research is really amazing. What you've been a part of and what 
continues to come out of your work with VIEW and Harvard School of Public Health and, and other groups that are starting to research the impacts of connecting people to nature. Really fascinating. So I think last question, uh, I guess really two questions is, you know, what do you do to bring nature into your daily routine? And then second, you know, where can, where can people get a hold of you and contact you? Yeah, on well, the first one, um, I've, I continue to do what I've been doing since I was a kid, which is getting outside um, first and foremost. Uh, I've, one of actually the big benefits of moving out to the Bay Area where I am now is that I have so many awesome outdoor activities at my disposal. I've you know recently gotten into surfing, which I'd never done before. Um, there's obviously a lot of wonderful national parks, things like um, Tahoe, where you can go and get go for skiing or even during the summer for hiking. There's just so many fun activities out here. So that's been my key, especially during the pandemic where a lot of other activities are hard to do. The outdoors is, is always open. Um, so that's been what I've been keeping myself busy with. Um, and then, yeah, to get in touch with me, uh, I'm, uh, you can just you know send me an email directly um, at my view email, or you can uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn or really anywhere. Uh, I'm out there and, and I'd love to talk to people that are interested in this topic. Oh, thank you so much. And we'll, you will post your contact info and some of your amazing research papers on our, with our show notes as well. So once again, today we're joined by Dr. Piers McDonton, the Director of Health Strategy at VIEW. Piers, thanks again for the time. Yeah, thanks. This was great. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the Wild Spaces podcast. This is your host, Matt Dungan, saying I hope you're feeling a little more wild and inspired. Continue your journey to connect people with nature through design at wildspacesinstitute.org and subscribe to the Wild Spaces podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform.